Today's scripture reading comes from Esther 5, 9 through 6, 12. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a high of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word is forever. Good morning, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, we are uh, in the middle of a seven-week sermon series on the book of Esther. Uh, today is actually our fifth sermon. And so if you're joining us for the first time today, it's almost like walking into the middle of a movie with no context as to what happened prior uh, to you walking in. And so I want to reintroduce uh, to you uh, two characters in this story, Haman and Mordecai. And we read early uh, on in this passage a little bit about Haman, and Haman is the prime minister of Persia, and he is second in command to King Xerxes. As we take a look at the uh, initial verses, what we see is that Haman is living what we would refer to as the good life. 
he has a great job, he has prestige, he has wealth, he has fame, he has power. He is invited to the most exclusive parties with the cultural elites. He has everything that a person could ever want from this world, save for one thing. The one thing Haman did not have was the respect of a man named Mordecai. And we read in verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Now, we are not exactly sure why Mordecai did not bow towards Haman, but there are two educated guesses as to why he did not bow. The first is for racial reasons. Uh, Haman was a part of the uh, Amalekites, uh, of Amalekite descent. And historically, we know that there has always been tension between Amalekites and Jews. The best modern example I can give you of this today is Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick is the former quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, and prior to every football game, the national anthem was sung, and instead of standing and pledging allegiance to the flag, Colin Kaepernick would take a knee. Now, whether you agree with what he did or you disagree with what Kaepernick did, from Kaepernick's perspective, the reason why he took a knee during the national anthem is because he could not pledge honor to a nation that oppressed certain kinds of people. And similarly, the reason why Mordecai does not bow towards Haman is because he could not honor a man that oppressed his people. So that's one possible reason as to why Mordecai does not bow towards Haman. But there's a second reason. The first is racial, but the second is for religious reasons. According to rabbinic tradition, uh, Haman wore something type of necklace or medallion that had some kind of idolatrous figure on it. And so for religious purposes and as a follower of God, uh, Mordecai in good conscience could not bow towards a man that had some kind of idol around his neck. Now regardless of whether it was for racial reasons or for religious reasons, we do know this, Mordecai does not bow and give homage to Haman. And as a result of that, he is filled with rage. And in verse 13, this is what Haman says. But all this, all this means the wife, the kids, the white picket fenced home, the, uh, the power, the prestige, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And what, Mord uh, what Haman is basically saying is this. I can have everything that this world can offer, but if I don't have this one single thing, it means nothing to me. And what he's basically saying is that we can have everything this world can offer and yet still feel a sense of dissatisfaction with our life. If you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you a quote from a uh, New York Times bestselling author named Tony Schwartz who wrote an article for the New York Times called The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value, which is what the title of today's sermon is based upon. And this is what Schwartz says. 
Why does Michael Phelps keep returning to a brutal training regimen in the pool long after he's achieved every imaginable accolade as a swimmer? Why do men who have earned hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions, work relentlessly to earn even more long after it could possibly make any material difference in their lives? Why does a substantial group of politicians with no remote chance of being elected president feel compelled to traverse the country campaigning 18 hours a day for more than two years? As little as these very people have in common, their shared core hunger is for value. Once our basic needs are met, we human beings arguably crave value above all else. We each want desperately to matter, to feel a sense of worthiness. And so the reason why Schwartz says that every single one of us are on this enduring hunt for personal value is because Schwartz says, and I don't know if he's religious or not, but Schwartz rightly says that each of us suffers from a type of inner depletion. And because we suffer from an inner depletion, we will use people, places, things to fill up that sense of inner depletion that we feel in our lives. And if we are each brutally honest with ourselves, this is part of the reasons why our careers matter to us so, so much. Because it fills up an inner depletion that we feel in our hearts. This also explains why some of us are repeatedly in a cycle of unhealthy relationship after unhealthy relationship after unhealthy relationship. This explains why some parents want to be the best parents they can be because all of us suffer from an inner depletion that we feel and we want to justify our existence that we matter and so our inner mantra is this you need to look at me and notice what i'm doing and acknowledge it because i matter and so each of us has a craving for the sense of value this worth and we want respect from one another the psychiatrist james gilligan uh, wrote a book called Violence, and he spent his entire life studying prisoners. And so in many ways, prisons were his laboratory. And one of the common features that he noticed amongst all prisoners and why they were in prison is because they felt disrespected. And because they felt disrespected, they did some erroneous things that they shouldn't have done, leading, leading them to where they are right now. And this is what Gilligan says on the first page of your bulletin. On one occasion, the officers in a prison had become involved in a running battle with a prisoner in which he would assault them and they would punish him. The more they punished him, the more violent he became. And the more violent he became, the more they punished him. They placed him in solitary confinement, deprived him of even the last few privileges and possessions a prison inmate has. And yet, he continued to assault them whenever they opened his door. When I saw this prisoner, I asked him, what do you want so badly that you are willing to give up everything else in order to get it? In response, this man, he was usually so inarticulate that it was difficult to get a clear answer to any question, astonished me by standing up tall, looking me in the eye, and replying with perfect clarity and a kind of simple eloquence, pride, dignity, self-esteem, and I'll kill every expletive in that cell block if I have to in order to get it. 
He went on to describe how the officers were attempting to strip away his last shred of dignity and self-esteem by disrespecting him and said, I still have my pride and I won't let them take that away from me. If you ain't got pride, you got nothing. And I think all of us can relate to this desire for respect in one way or another. And the reason for that is because we feel like we have a sense of dignity and worth. Now, why do we feel that way? Is it because we're grown-up germs? Do we desire respect because we're sophisticated chimpanzees? Or as a French poet Voltaire would say, are we tormented atoms lying in a bed of mud? Is that why we desire respect, value, worth, significance? From a Christian point of view, the reason why all of us crave respect, value, and significance is because we are made in the image of God. And God is innately filled with significance, value, worth, and respect. And because we are made in the image of an almighty God and we mirror Him, this is why we we feel uh, the way that we do. And Haman is a good case study of a man that is trying to find a sense of significance and worth apart from God. He's looking to people, places, things to acquire, to garner this sense of respect. But time after time after time, because of Mordecai, he feels unsatisfied and he doesn't feel that sense of dignity and worth. If I were to ask you the question, if we were to turn the tables to you, What is the one thing you are looking for apart from God to find your sense of significance, worth, and respect? What would it be? Because all of us are on a pursuit to a certain degree to acquire those things from the very one that can give it to us. This is not in your bulletin, but C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Lewis says this, Nearly all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. When we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. What are some of the things in your life that you are chasing to achieve and to give you only what God can ultimately give you in your life? And it didn't help Haman that he was surrounded by a community of people that did not starve his ego, but actually fed his ego. And we read in verse 14, Uh, a conversation that he has between his wife and his friends. And in verse 14, it says this, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Within minutes, Haman goes from feeling a sense of uh, rage to now feeling a sense of delight. And the reason why he goes from rage to delight so quickly is because he was surrounded by people that did not tell him what he needed to hear, 
but he was surrounded by people that told him what he wanted to hear. And what was their advice? Their advice was, just kill him, and then go have fun at the party. <laughs> Not because Mordecai tried to kill you or tried to kill your family, but kill him just because he disrespected you. And then go have a glass of wine with the king and the queen and go have fun. And this advice, this wise counsel, delighted Haman. And I do think that there are two things that we can learn from this brief conversation. The first is this. We are the sum product of the people we spend the most time around. Our culture says just be yourself. But the truth of the matter is none of us can just be ourselves. We are the product of the people we eat with, play with, hang out with, work with, socialize with, converse with. We are all the product of our social environment. None of us are just choosing to be ourselves. And therefore, what that means is having the right kind of people in your life is imperative if you want to become the right kind of person instead of living a life that will ultimately lead to your self-destruction. And Haman was not, was not around the right kind of people, but he was around the wrong kind of people. And living in a hyper-mobile society that we do today, where we lose our friends faster than we can form them, I do think that the best, not one of the best, but the best place where you can form these type of friendships, the right kind of friendships, is right here in the church. And when I say right kind of friendships, I don't mean just deep community and deep friendships and people you can hang out with, but I also mean a deep sense of accountability. The truth of the matter is all of us want deep friendships and deep, account, uh, deep community, but the moment we realize that deep community also requires deep accountability, we, we typically run the other way. The truth of the matter is if people really got to know us and the way that we lived our life, we would probably be more criticized than we are today. But good criticism, timely criticism, gentle criticism, loving criticism can build us up even though it oftentimes it feels like we are being torn down which leads me to my second point from this conversation. In Proverbs 27, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When a surgeon cuts us open, they don't cut us open just for the sake of cutting us open. They cut us open in order to heal us. And a good friend will cut us open in order to heal us. They will not cut us for the sake of cutting it, nor will they be chicken and non-confrontational, which is not a form of love, but actually a form of indifference. But they will cut us open in order to heal us because they have a vantage point that you do not have. Have you ever watched a football game like the Super Bowl and all of a sudden during the middle of the game, the quarterback like Tom Brady all of a sudden is talking on a huge phone? Do you know who he's talking to? He's talking to an assistant coach 100 yards up in the press box. Do you know why the quarterback is talking on the telephone to an assistant coach all the way up in the press box? It's because the assistant coach can see things on the field that the quarterback cannot see. 
and the assistant coach constructively criticizes what the quarterback is doing if he's making some mistakes in order to improve him and in order to help him. And good friends are like that assistant coach. They will call you out in a gentle way because they have a vantage point into your life where they're able to reveal the blind spots uh, that you cannot see. And unfortunately for Haman, he did not have these type of people in his life. Rather, he had the type of people that would feed his ego uh, instead of starving it. And so their advice to him is simply this, just follow your heart. Just trust your gut. And in many ways, this is what our culture says all the time, just follow your heart. Interestingly enough, in Jeremiah, the prophet says, the heart is deceitful above all else. <laughs> and sometimes your heart should not be trusted. Sometimes your feelings should not be trusted. Sometimes your gut is totally off, which is why it is so important to have a community of wiser people than yourself around you so that you live a life that leads to flourishing rather than a life that will eventually lead uh, to your self-destruction. And the scene all of a sudden shifts that very same night from Haman and his wife and his friends to a king who is not sleepless in Seattle, but to a king who is sleepless in his palace. And because he could not sleep, and he could not just pop NyQuil into his mouth, he asked for the next best thing. And that is a book of chronicles being read to him about his reign. I mean, if there is nothing that is going to put him faster to sleep, it's, it's that. But as the readers are reading this book of chronicles about his reign, instead of this book being... Uh, 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 putting him to sleep, it actually does the opposite effect and it jolts him awake. Particularly the part where they read about how a man named Mordecai saved his life against two assassins that were attempting to kill the king's life. And so King Xerxes says, what has been done for Mordecai for his good deed? And the readers say, nothing. And so King Xerxes, being the type of man that is always seeking counsel and advice, says, is there anyone in the courtyard? And the attendees say, yes, Haman is actually out there. And the reason why Haman is out there at the dusk of the morning is to ask permission to the king to impale Mordecai. And so the king brings him in, but before Haman can make his request to kill Mordecai and impale him on his pole, the king first says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor in? And if you read with me verse 6 through 10 on page 9 of your bulletin, this is how their conversation goes. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything 
you have recommended. And you can almost see the color on Haman's face being flushed with a sense of humiliation. Because he, instead of killing Mordecai, now has to honor him. Imagine having to promote and honor and dignify the person you dislike the most in your life. And that is what now Haman has to do. When you read the scriptures, one of the most pervasive themes that you see in the Bible is that God opposes the proud, but he always gives grace to the humble. He smushes the proud, but he lifts up those who are gentle in spirit. And because of his pride, Haman is now on the road to his own self-destruction. You know, one of the most interesting things to me when I read uh, the heroes of our past and even people that I really respect today that are living that are relatively unknown, the one common theme with people that are really great, the one common theme is that the first victory they, they ever experienced was a victory over themselves. They no longer tripped over their own pride. They no longer got in their own way. The first victory that they had was over themselves. They were over themselves. And here we see a classic example of a man that is not yet over himself. And therefore it is God that is giving him now a buffet of humble pie uh, to eat. And the story takes on this dramatic turn where now in the next chapter, as we'll talk about next week, instead of Mordecai being hung on this pole and impaled, now it would eventually become Haman. You know what's so interesting about this word pole is that it literally is translated a wooden tree. And all of a sudden, this great reversal takes place, this great exchange where Mordecai is not killed, but now Haman is killed for his own sins. And what we see here is this sort of shadow, an indirect shadow of what the gospel is really about. Because the gospel story is also about a great, as Martin Luther would say, a marvelous exchange or a reversal that takes place. Where a man hangs on a wooden tree, but he doesn't hang on this tree for his own sins, like Haman does, but he hangs on a tree for the people's sins and for what they have done. He dies for us. And if you want to know how valuable you are and why you deserve respect and why you deserve dignity, here is the reason why. It's because God died for you. And he places that kind of worth upon your shoulders. Not because you have a great job or you're handsome or you're beautiful or your body image or you're successful. He doesn't place this kind of worth on you because you had anything, but rather because you have nothing. And yet he still loves you. How do you know when something is really valuable? Like gold or diamond? How do you know when something is really valuable? You know when something is really valuable based upon what people are willing to give up for it, whether it's time, money, and even their life. Now apply that logic to what God did for us on the cross. Do you want to know how valuable you are in God's eyes? Look at the cross. And despite the fact that we were 
we are God's enemies. He dies for us anyway, so that now we belong to Him. And that's where we garner our sense of worth, uh, our sense of dignity, and our significance from. So I want to close with two applications. Uh, The first is this. Uh, Imagine your children draw a treasure map of their backyard, and there are these dots that are leading up to this big X where the treasure is in the backyard. Now, that's pretty cute. They're playing, gives us some time off. But deep down inside, you know in your heart that this treasure map is not real, that below the X, there really is no treasure. But oftentimes, that is the way that we live our life, on this false treasure hunt, where we look for treasures that cannot really fulfill us or satisfy us. What kind of enduring hunt are you on for your personal value? What thing, what treasure underneath that X are you looking to, to give you that? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it proving your parents wrong? Is it getting out of your small hometown? What thing are you looking for? What, where does your treasure lie? Because that is where your heart lies as well. And the second thing I would say is this. My preaching professor once wisely said, take the gospel seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. People that crave respect look for respect oftentimes in the wrong way, and that is by seeking respect itself, when respect is often a byproduct of seeking something else. Similarly with happiness. You never get happiness by seeking after happiness. It is a byproduct of something else. And one of the ways that you can stop taking yourself so seriously is by being self-deprecating instead of boasting about yourself like Haman does to everyone about all that he has. One of the ways that you can stop uh, uh, being so serious is by being self-deprecating. I didn't say by being a self-hater or by having pity parties, but I said by being self-deprecating where you make fun of yourself. And you know what the great thing about that is? You don't really need to have a great sense of humor to make fun of yourself. I realize that some of us were more funny than others. I get that. But one thing that we all can do is poke fun of ourselves. But typically, when we crave respect, it is a clear sign that we suffer from chronic insecurity about a particular thing. And so we need to do something to compensate for that chronic insecurity. It could be starting a relationship, starting a family, starting a nonprofit, starting a church, where we want to compensate for the chronic insecurity that we have. What is that for you? If there's one lesson that we can learn, it is this, my friends. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the best living example of that is our Lord himself, who I think we all respect. Let's pray together. Lord, we are about to sing a song as we wrap up our service called Crowns. And in the chorus it says, my wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want than just to know his love. My heart is set on Christ and I will count all else as loss. The greatest of my crowns mean nothing to me now. 
for I counted up the cost and all my wealth is in the cross. Help us to mean what we, what we are about to sing. In Jesus' name I pray.